The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we are in fellowship, ready to study the Word, so we have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. God promises that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So any sin we commit, whether we know it, whether we don't know it, whether it's intentional or unintentional, any sin that we commit immediately separates us from fellowship with the Lord, and we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. But when we confess our sins, we recover fellowship, and remember it is the Holy Spirit called the Spirit of Truth who was the agent of revelation and is the one who teaches us and fills us with his word. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Father, again we come to you and ask that you continue to guide and direct this nation. We thank you for the freedom that we have, the freedom to study and worship. We pray now at this time where we continue the war against terrorism and the leaders of this nation are seriously considering invasion of Iraq. We pray that you would give the political leaders wisdom and also the military leaders as they plan the strategy and the tactics for the invasion. We pray for our enemies that you would confound and confuse them and that we might continue to uh, stay secure as a nation, that we might continue to send out missionaries and continue to support Israel. Father, now as we study your word, we pray you would help us to understand these things that we study, see how they apply to our own lives. Give us a greater appreciation for the total, your total plan and how all things work together for good. Father, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. One other announcement, I guess. I forgot to mention it. Mention it first hour, and that is that in lieu of where we're going as a church and our support for missions, it is 
sending out missionaries that is one of the marks of a client nation that God uses in the, during the church age. It is not a government that sends out missionaries. It's not individuals that send out missionaries. It is a local church that sends out missionaries. Therefore, it is vital and crucial for a local church to have a strong missions policy. And that is one of the reasons that we have uh, reports monthly by Dave to give us insight into what's going on around the world in terms of foreign missions. Also, we try to have missionaries like Jim Myers, Dave Kibbe, others who, as they come through, get an opportunity to speak. But so often somebody comes through and it's like six years before you see them again. It's hard to maintain that that connection. And I think with a church that's our size where you can't have close intimate ties with every missionary, but to have one, choose one, that we can have that kind of ongoing relationship with. And, of course, since I've been over there working with Jim Myers the last uh, or a couple of times in recent years, going to both Kazakhstan and Kiev, and then in light of uh, his being here this summer and we've decided to pick him up as support, that um, I think it would be a good idea to try to send some people over there to help with some of the outreach ministries they have during the summer, and especially in light of the fact that that we that any church needs to be presenting to the young people in a congregation the option and opportunity that that one of the greatest callings you can have in life is to be a pastor or to be a missionary and to serve the Lord uh, on the mission field, and that this is just as viable a career option as any other career in life. And many times you can combine a secular career with uh, work on the mission field. In fact, in many countries you can go in as a teacher, you can go in as a nurse, or you can go in in almost any secular job and then on the side develop uh, 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 outreach of evangelism and Bible teaching. That's something like what Dave Kibbe does. I think he's involved in education. And then on the side he is able to get involved in some uh, missions work. So in light of that and the outreach, various outreach programs, not programs per se, but outreaches that uh, Jim Myers and his team over there have developed, we're going to try to plug in some high school, college-age kids into, an, into uh, um, their outreach next summer, probably a camp program, some other things. So anyone who is interested, or and this involves people out who are listening to tapes, Anyone between the ages of 16, 25, even if you're a little, little more mature than that, and you really would like to go over there and help out, let me know. We're going to try to limit it to 10 people. You don't want to get too many over there. The logistics become uh, too difficult, and there's uh, just not always enough opportunity. It's hard to move 10 people around uh, and keep them all together without losing anybody. And Lord knows we wouldn't want to lose some of our Oh, I see some parents raising their eyebrows, but no, we really wouldn't want to lose any of our uh, any of our kids over there. <laughs> so this is uh this this is a great great opportunity, and there's three or four people down in Houston who are also interested. I'm working with Jim Dumas. We're putting it together. The cost on this that's always a concern. Um, we can't really nail it down per se. We're thinking around $1,500, and we may need to have develop some extra giving to provide some scholarships or some help. 
but uh, if necessary, but around $1,500. Right now, Jim Dumas told me he, he they've just found a missionary travel agent that has access to getting missionary fares uh, on on airlines going over there, which he just came back from there, and he had a round-trip ticket of uh, around $800, I think. But he's not sure if that would apply to um, young people on a short-term trip. You might have to be... Uh, you know, regular full-time missionary for that to apply. So we're just going to have to wait and see what airfares are like. That's the major part of this. So we're usually we can, I think they run around a thousand or twelve hundred dollars for airfare. That's the lion's share of it. And then uh, there's some other costs involved as well. So we'll just have to wait to see how that develops. Okay, let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 9. 1 John 5, 9. And we'll pick up where we left off last time and then uh, look at this closing section. We're now in the conclusion. And in the conclusion, John is going to return to a theme that he first introduced at the beginning of this epistle. It's fascinating to watch how some of the writers of Scripture carefully outline their letters so that certain themes that are introduced in the introduction are then carried through, developed uh, in the body of the epistle, and then at the end of the epistle come back and develop the theme. For example, we saw that in James, where you have the emphasis on perseverance in James 1, not mentioned again in the body of the epistle, and then when you come to the conclusion in James 5, you have five or six uses of either hupomone for endurance or makrothemia for patience. And that becomes, and what James is doing obviously at the end is, is drawing some conclusions and application related to his basic theme. The same thing can be said of John. If you hold your place in John, 1 John 5, Go back to the first three verses, we see the emphasis of testimony. And his missionary report, Dave mentioned uh, that martyrs are the often the uh, the blood of the martyrs is often the seed of the church. And the word martyr comes from the Greek verb martyreo, which means one who gives a legal testimony. And since the, there were those who gave their testimony to Christ and lost their life because of their testimony. They were called martyrs. That's the etymological root of our English word. First John chapter 1, John emphasizes this testimony that the writers have, that the apostles have. This is their witness. They are functioning here as legal witnesses. The imagery used by this, the word martyreo is that of the courtroom. It is a technical legal term that denotes someone who can and does speak from his own personal experience about actions in which he took part or which happened to him or about persons or relations known to him. It is frequent, It is the key word for someone who is a witness at a trial or in some legal transaction. So it is a very solemn word with profound implications. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the we being the apostles, we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, 
we had hands-on experience with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He is, was fully incarnate in a human body. This is a key issue with the false teachers that they were saying, well, Jesus really wasn't fully God. You had some that say that he was just a man, others that say that he just had the appearance of a man, that he wasn't physically God because, of course, as we've talked about even in the first hour today, that in Greek culture there was this dualistic idea that that which was matter was evil, that which was spirit was good, and so if a god were to become a man, he would be connected to that which was inherently evil, i.e. material, uh, a material body. Therefore, this Jesus didn't really appear in the flesh. He just sort of had this appearance to man. It just wasn't real. And that view was called docetism from the Greek word dokeo, meaning, um, meaning to appear or to be, to be manifest. So he says here that, um, that we witnessed him, we saw him with our eyes, we heard him with our ears, our hands handled him, we touched him. Of course, we're reminded of Thomas feeling the, the nail prints in Jesus' hands and the, and the indentation where the sword had pierced him on his side. That there is empirical evidence. We, and this isn't just something that, like, like we see in movies, always gets me when you watch some movie like, uh, like, oh, what was the one that came out? There was one that came out in the late 70s about Jesus and then earlier versions like King of Kings and Lord of Lords and some of these others. That when Jesus is, after he's crucified and he's raised from the dead, when he appears to the disciples, you never see a physical Jesus. You just hear a disembodied voice. And uh, it, it leaves you with the impression that the resurrection was just this subjective experience that the apostles had, that there wasn't a real physical bodily resurrection where Jesus Christ's physical body was renovated into a new body and escaped the tomb, was able to uh, pass through walls, pass through doors, rearrange its molecular structure in certain ways, that just seems too fantastic for modern man. They're just too advanced to, of course, believe in such things. And, of course, they're the promoters of such wonderful acts of scientific accuracy as Star Wars and Star Trek, but we won't go there. Um, so they don't believe that that actually happened, and that's how, how they display it. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that the disciples were so afraid... When Jesus was arrested, that they scattered because they were going to be arrested as well as co-conspirators, and they knew that their life hung in the balance. And what is it that gave them the courage to gather together and to preach the gospel 40 days later? It was that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. They knew this wasn't an apparition. It wasn't a ghost. It wasn't just something they imagined. It wasn't wishful thinking. It was that they were profoundly shocked and surprised by the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he actually had uh, victory over death and a physical resurrection, and they had empirical evidence of such. They touched him. They felt him. They saw him. They heard him. And John goes on to say in verse 2, the life was manifested. Life was manifested. That means we understood by watching Jesus what real life was all about, not this shadow life that we have as fallen creatures that's a long 
are far cry from what God intended, but we saw what real life was manifested in the flesh in the person of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, that he was undiminished deity and true humanity united together forever in one person. That life was manifested. We've seen and bear witness. There's our word, martyreo, bear witness. We have seen it, and we are giving a legal testimony to the fact that this was real. This was not something we just conjured up. And, of course, according to Mosaic law, there had to be in any situation two or three witnesses, and here you have at least 11 witnesses. Of course, John, excuse me, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, or chapter 15, outlines many other witnesses. There was at one appearance, the appearance of Jesus to over 500 disciples who all witnessed that resurrection. There's the appearance to James and his other brothers who were not believers before the crucifixion, but after they saw the resurrected Christ, his brothers, literally half-brothers, according to the flesh, because, of course, his real father was was God the Holy Spirit who created life, physical, biological life in the womb of Mary. It was... These full brothers, Joseph was their father, but Joseph was not the father of the humanity of Jesus Christ. It was these brothers who he appeared to, and they then trusted in Christ. So you have this tremendous evidence. And when uh, some of these earlier epistles, like 1 Corinthians, were written, many of those who had seen the resurrected Christ were still alive. You could go down and send your eyewitness news team down to Jerusalem and interview them. Now, by the time John wrote First John, about uh, 60 years had gone by, so not too many of those witnesses were still left alive, and that's why he's reminding his readers that we saw it, and we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, or we're declared to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us. So, Fellowship between the apostles and others was based on an accurate understanding of Jesus Christ. But it's not just the doctrine, not just saying, okay, I believe in the hypostatic union, not just a belief that Jesus was undiminished deity and true humanity, but it's the implication of that. See, you have a doctrine, you have a principle like that, but it just doesn't isolate itself like that. It is the hypostatic union that is fundamental to understanding much of the spiritual life of the church age because Jesus is true humanity and he is true deity, but in his humanity he handled the problems, the vicissitudes, the heartaches of life through the Holy Spirit as a precedent for demonstrating the principles of the spiritual life in the church age. He didn't handle the problems, the temptations, the loss of a friend in death, uh, such as Lazarus, by relying upon his deity. He handled those situations by relying upon God, the Holy Spirit, demonstrating in his humanity that the grace of God and the provision of the promises of God in his word were more than sufficient. So we have this witness, this testimony of the apostles, and now John returns to talk about that theme as he wraps up the conclusion in 1 John 5, uh, 9 and following. So back to 1 John 5, 
And in verse 8, we see an introduction to this, or actually 7 and 8, and there are three that bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. In the Old Testament, you only needed two witnesses. Uh, it was better to have three, and now you have three witnesses. The, the Holy Spirit, who witnesses, of course, through the Word of God, because it is the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth who reveals the Word of God. And Jesus said to the uh, disciples, He will bring all things... He will bring all things to your memory. You will be able to recall everything you need to, and that specifically had reference to the fact that they would be writing the Gospels, and all these details would be brought back in a precise way to their memory by God the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the second witness is the water, which speaks of the baptism of John. Now, you remember there are eight different baptisms in the New Testament, and the baptism of John was the baptism of repentance. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus' baptism, which is a baptism by John, was different because Jesus did not need to repent. It is a unique baptism, and its purpose was to inaugurate the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the primary significance of baptism in, in, when it was used, was to signify the beginning of something. Just as the baptism of the Holy Spirit indicates the beginning of our spiritual life and takes place at the instant of salvation. So the water speaks of the baptism of Jesus, and that's found in Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11 and 3.22, and John 1.33, when he is baptized. But it is the Holy Spirit at that time, at that water baptism, it is God the Father and God the Holy Spirit who offer a witness, a verbal witness and a visual witness to Jesus Christ. The Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, uh, with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17, Mark 1.11, John 3.22, and John 1.33 all speak of that. The Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. So the Father spoke, and it was audible. If you had been there with a microphone and a recorder, you could have recorded the voice of God. If you had had your digital Sony video camera there, you could have not only caught the uh, voice of God, but you could have videotaped the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. There is a physical demonstration and testimony of who Jesus Christ is that everyone there saw, everyone who was there witnessed that. They might not all have understood what it meant, but they they all heard the words, it wasn't just like, oh, gee, there's a noise, like a rumbling of thunder, and, and there, what's that bird doing flying over Jesus' head? You know, maybe you ought to watch out. You know, that's, just wanted to see if everybody was awake this morning. See, that, that's not what's going on. They heard specific words spoken from heaven attesting to who Jesus was. 
and, and, and they were flabbergasted. And then this bird descended and sat on his shoulder or, or hovered over him. We're not sure exactly which, but it was clear that there was something supernatural that took place, something that they had never seen before and set everyone, uh, to talking. Now the, the third witness is the blood, which is a symbol of Jesus Christ's spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. Just as the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed the physical blood of Christ, that was a picture of the spiritual death of Christ. You can't see somebody die spiritually. You heard Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where he is reacting to the incredible torment of having the sins of the world poured out upon him and imputed to him on the cross. And it's at that moment he died spiritually. But the physical blood was designed as a symbol to demonstrate he had gone through spiritual death, but also to indicate that he was bearing the consequences of spiritual death. Remember, spiritual death is the penalty for sin. Physical death is just one of many consequences. It's the worst consequence of sin and spiritual death. And if Jesus in the resurrection could conquer physical death, then he that was a demonstration that he could also conquer spiritual death and any other problem that we face in life. So these three terms, Holy Spirit, the water, and the blood, all signify legal witnesses to who Jesus Christ is and to what he did on the cross. So John says there are three that bear witness. That's the verb form, martyreo. And then we saw last time that the phrase, in, starting with the word in heaven, or the phrase in heaven, all the way down to the concluding phrase in verse 8, bear witness on earth, that that phrase was only found in eight Greek manuscripts that were used in the Texas Receptus. Actually, they weren't consulted in the Texas Receptus, but it's only found in eight manuscripts. Last time we saw that, that even in the Texas Receptus, which was the foundation for the King James Version, that that phrase is not found there, that it was inserted by Erasmus due to pressure from some Roman Catholic scholars because it was found in the Vulgate, but it's not found in any old manuscripts. It's not the oldest manuscript. It's found and dated from like the ninth century, so that doesn't give it any uh, any real credibility. In fact, it's inserted and translated from the Latin of the Vulgate. It's just back translated, and it's not a was not in the original. So the verse should read from seven to eight. For there are three that bear witness. And then the rest, just cross it out until you get down to the Spirit. The three that bear witness are the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. And that is who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished on the cross. Then verse 9 says, If we receive the testimony or the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. And here John uses what is called an a fortiori argument. 
an a fortiori argument. This is a Latin term for a certain type of logic. And the logic means literally from the stronger or from the greater. For example, if you can sit down and you you can eat an entire fried chicken in one sitting, then I could say, well, you'll also be able to eat a drumstick. See, if you can do something much harder or more difficult, then obviously you can do something with less difficulty. Well, here uh, John is arguing from the lesser to the greater that if you believe men, so you believe men, it's easy for us to believe men, but he says, if you believe men and what they say, then you should also believe God, because God is greater than men. So if we receive the witness of men, if you accept the legal testimony of those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, to his death, burial, and resurrection, then the witness of God is even greater. Because the tendency for all of us is to put too much weight on the witness of men and the human experience of men. He said, so if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So now we have uh, the, the first two uses of the noun form, but in terms of this word, this concept of being a legal uh, witness or legal testimony, this is the second and third time it's mentioned. And then it says, for this is the testimony of God which he has testified of his son. Notice how many times we have the concept of testimony here. Guess what John's talking about? This legal, the content of this legal testimony. Often the emphasis in the word martyria, which is the noun form used here, the emphasis is on the content of the witness, not merely the act or the person who is witnessing, but on the content of their testimony, what they are saying and uh, its significance. So he says, for this is the witness of God, which he had testified of his son. And the, that indicates the next statement in verse, beginning in verse 10. This is the testimony. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. That if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this witness, it becomes internal. You have accepted it as true. And that, of course, is what produces regeneration. He who believes in the Son of God, not just Jesus as a man, but as Jesus as full deity. And we've studied the term Son of God, where we have seen that that is a, based on a Hebraism, where when you use the phrase son of something, that whatever that something is, is an adjective such as a murderer or fool or, or a son of perdition, the case of Judas Iscariot. And therefore, that is describing a person as a murderer or a fool or someone who is lost. It does not indicate who their father is. It does not indicate generation. It just is a description of the individual. So the phrase Son of God then means full deity. He who believes or accepts or trusts in the full deity of Christ has this witness in himself. He is part of the now, pool of apostolic witnesses. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. If you do not believe God, then John says this has made God a liar. He says the same kind of thing in 
First uh, John chapter one verse ten, where he says, "If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar." God has made us the statement that Jesus is the Son of God in full full deity. And if you say he's not, then you're making God a liar. That's blasphemy. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happens in so many churches today where they limit the deity of Christ or they don't believe in the full deity of Christ. They think he was just a good man. And see, Jesus never left people with that option. There's a lot of people who think Jesus was a good man or he was a good teacher. Jesus was a religious innovator. And they always want to have some positive view of Jesus. But Jesus really doesn't leave us with that option. There's only three ways you can view Jesus. First of all, he's a liar. So he claimed to be God. He claimed to be one with God. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. So he claims to be the exclusive way to God. Well, he either is, in which case that's true, or he's not telling the truth. If he's not telling the truth, he's a liar. If he is a liar and if he is deceptive, then he cannot be a good man, a religious innovator, or a great moral teacher because he's basically a deceiver. And there have been millions and millions of people down through the ages who have trusted him, and he's not worth trusting. So you can't have a legitimate option of thinking that he's a good man. He is either a liar or he is crazy. He's a lunatic. Because anyone who goes around and says that I'm the only way to God and that I am God is either telling the truth or they're self-deceived. If they're not, if they're not intentionally deceiving people as a liar, then they're self-deceived. And if they're self-deceived and they think they're God, then they're, they're nuts. They're crazy. So you, you're only left with basically these options, he's a liar or he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord of the universe as he claimed to be. So those are the only three options that people have available to them. And uh, don't get caught up with somebody who just thinks that, oh, Jesus is a great guy and he had some good things to say, but, but he, he's not really God. Well, he can't be both. He's, he's got to be either God or a liar and a deceiver. So he is the Son of God, and when you, if you say he wasn't, then what you're saying is God is a liar, and God has deceived us in the Scriptures. So that is pure blasphemy. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this testimony is through the apostles and through their uh, apostolic witness as contained in the Gospels. And then it's going to be even more clarified as to exactly what the content is, and that's in verse uh, verse 11. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, how do we get the eternal life? There's all kinds of different things you might hear when you go to churches about how you get the eternal life. See, John says here it's he who believes in the Son of God. But you have people who say, well... You need to surrender to Jesus. Well, I didn't know Jesus was attacking me. I always wondered about that. See, that's just the old spiritual uh, type of verbiage that, well, we need to give our life to Jesus. Well, I don't read anywhere in the Scriptures where 
where that's a condition for salvation. He doesn't say you need to surrender to Jesus here. He says you need to believe in Jesus. Then you hear other people use Revelation 3.20 and say, well, you need to invite Jesus into your heart or into your life. Bible never uses that terminology. When Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, he's talking about a church filled with believers. He's talking about fellowship. He's talking about the fact that these are believers who God loves. And, and in the previous verse, it uses the Greek verb phileo for love, which has, which is only used of God's love for believers. It's never used of God's love for unbelievers. So when Jesus is standing at the door in Revelation 3.20 and knocking, he is standing outside the church that has excluded him because they are no longer, they no longer have right doctrine. They're no longer in fellowship. They've excluded Christ from the life of the church and he is knocking to be let back in. It's a picture of fellowship. And he says, uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and lets me, let, I will come in and sup with him. And that is a picture in the uh, ancient Near East of fellowship. You had fellowship with someone, somebody came to your house, or they would f- fix a meal, they would kill the fatted calf, they would bring in their best wine, and they would fix a meal, and you would sit down, talk, and, and it would go on for hours. You just didn't stop by and pick up a hamburger or a pop a microwave dinner into the oven. It was a f- five- or six-hour event. So that passage is talking about fellowship, not salvation. You have many other ways in which people uh, talk about uh, being a believer, joining the church. Sometimes they confuse things, uh, dedicating your life to Jesus, committing your life to Jesus. All of these various terms are, con- are, are distractions. They're not biblical terms. Uh, and you'll even hear people talk about you need to repent of your sins. Well, never does it say that in Scripture, especially when, when, with the idea that is often present today, and that is that repentance is remorse or feeling sorry for your sins. Repent in the Bible means to change your mind. It's based on the Greek word uh, metanoeo, and noeo comes from the Greek nous, meaning mind or thinking. Metamelamai is a different word, and it means remorse or sorrow. Uh, it's unfortunate that in... Uh, in the Russian Bible, they translate First John. If we, when we confess our sins, it's the idea: if we repent with sorrow, then God will forgive us. So, see that—that's how religious thinking enters into to, uh, bad translations. But the emphasis is believing, just trusting in Christ. It's the idea of accepting something to be true about somebody. You also have some people say you need to have a personal relationship with Jesus in order to be saved. Problem with that is, Nick, I mean, uh, Judas had a personal relationship with Jesus, and he wasn't saved. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to have a personal relationship with Jesus to be saved. Having a personal relationship with Jesus is something that comes after salvation. But at the point of salvation, the only way you and I know anything about Jesus is the printed words on the page of Scripture. In other words, we have propositions, statements. The term proposition is a technical uh, statement for our technical term for what you learned in junior high is a declarative sentence, a statement about reality that can be proved to be either true or false. If you accept that proposition as true, then you're saved. But people say, well, Robbie, that just sounds so so academic and so intellectual that all I have to do is is agree that something is true. 
Yeah, but you've got to agree that the right thing is true. And somebody say, well, what about the demons? They know that God exists over in James 2. They believe God exists, but they're not saved. Well, believing God exists isn't the gospel. See, they're not believing a saving proposition. The saving proposition is that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and that if you don't believe that Jesus died as a substitute for your sins, there's no salvation. That's where it starts. You have to know something. Faith is a is related to knowledge. Faith is the acceptance of a proposition is true, and that you are relying upon it. And and a good illustration of that is that each year when you do your taxes, or each month when you uh, balance your checkbook, that after you add up all the numbers and everything agrees and is reconciled, do you keep trying to check it and make sure that the numbers are right? I mean, once you've gone over, you checked, you double checked. We all do that. The numbers agree, and since I'm arithmetically challenged, when the numbers agree, I know it's I'm not don't live in a world in a governed by chance that that must mean I did something right, and so I stop. And I don't keep working on it because then I may mess something up and the numbers won't agree. But as soon as they agree, I know that uh, that, that that's within outside the realm of possibility. So that must mean I got it right, and I lay down my pencil and I stop, I rest because I assent. I agree that that is true. And when I do that, I stop and I rest and I rely upon that. And that is exactly what faith is. It is agreeing and truly assenting to the proposition that Jesus died for me and I cannot have eternal life unless I trust him and I am trusting him alone for my salvation. That is the proposition. It's not saying, oh, yeah, I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus died for me. That's not the same thing. You see, I can believe that Darwin taught that man evolved from apes. Or I can believe, but I don't have to believe that man evolved from apes. See, I can believe the Bible says something and not believe what the Bible says. You have to believe the right thing. And the right thing is that Jesus died for you. Not just say, I believe Jesus was a good man or that I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of mankind. That's great. Anybody can believe Jesus died on the cross for, for the sins of mankind. That's not the right proposition. The right proposition is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. To say that I believe Jesus died for my sins and I can't get to heaven any other way except by relying exclusively on him for my salvation. That's what faith is. And, and faith is based not on sight but on a knowledge of what the Word says to you. So the only way you get to Jesus is through what? The written Word of the New Testament. So when you believe those propositions, then we enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and not before. So faith is something that people don't understand a lot today, and they muddy the waters terribly about the nature of salvation. So verse 11, we read that this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. I want you to hold your place here, and let's look at just a couple of other passages in 1 John. 1 John 1, 2, which we read earlier, John says, The life was manifested. We've seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, and that is that that Jesus Christ is equal to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They are declaring him the one who is equivalent to life. And then in 1 John 3.15, I want you to notice something else. 
And that is there's another dimension to eternal life. And that is there's one dimension where you receive it at salvation and you will live eternally. You'll never have to worry about spending eternity in the lake of fire. You'll never have to worry about the eternal condemnation. You will have, receive a resurrection body at, uh, at when the Lord comes back. But there's another sense of eternal life, and that has to do with the fullness the full dimension of our spiritual life that, that we are enjoying in this life. In 1 John three fifteen, John said, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We, we covered that in detail. That's not talking about salvation. That's not talking about someone who's not a believer because... A brother, if you hate your brother, that means that you and the other person are both brothers in Christ. That means you're both saved. So the subject here is talking about two people who are believers, and if one hates his brother, then he's a murderer and eternal life is not abiding. But you said he's a believer. Yes, he's a believer and he has eternal life, but he's not enjoying it and it's not abiding in him. Jesus said, I, I came not like the thief to destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. That's the difference between the reality of eternal existence and the full enjoyment and possession of that life here in time. And so when John is talking here at the end, he's talking not so much about simply the reception of non-ending life in heaven, but the full expression and dimension of that in this life that's the result of abiding in Christ. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. He gave this whole dimension, and this life is in his Son. That's what the false teachers are denying, that you really don't have eternal life because Jesus really wasn't fully God, so you don't have all of that. And John is is countering that. As I stated in the first hour, once again we see how the writers of Scripture are continually juxtaposing uh, human viewpoint thinking with divine viewpoint thinking. They are always presenting what the Bible says in a head-to-head confrontation with the kind of thinking that people in the congregations were running into on a day-to-day basis to help them learn to think about reality from a biblical framework and not simply from a human viewpoint framework. Verse 12 is the key statement. He who has the Son has life. And the concept there of having is the Greek verb echo in the present tense, which emphasizes a present possession. Notice that eternal life is something that is not earned or merited. It is a gift given by those, uh, by God to those who have the Son. He who has the Son has life. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit creates and simultaneously imparts to you a human spirit, and God at the same time gives to that human spirit his very own life, life eternal. So if you have the Son, that's a synonym for accepting Christ as Savior, believing on him. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I write I have written to you, that is not the whole epistle. We've seen this before, that there are four or five times in the epistle that John says, these things I have written to you, and it refers to that which he has just now stated. 
so that these things refers to that which John has been uh, saying from about verse 6. These things about the witness of Jesus Christ, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So we have two things there. First of all, that you may know that you have eternal life. You can have eternal life and not know it. Because you're doubting Christ, because you're doubting God's ability. Remember, it's God's ability that keeps us, not ours. And he's omnipotent, so he has the power to do what he wishes to accomplish. But also that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You see, that is crucial. That was the problem in this church was that the, the, the false teachers were coming in and they were saying, well, Jesus really isn't the Son of God. And so they were no longer, the false teachers no longer believed in the Son of God. They were not continuing to believe in the name of the Son of God. And John is warning them that if you want to have full possession of eternal life here in time, then you have to continue to rely upon Jesus as he is, and that is in his full deity and as the Son of God. That is the precedence for the spiritual life. So that brings us now to verse 14, which is the wrapping up of the epistle in the last part of this uh, letter to the uh, to his recipients in Ephesus and in Asia Minor. And we will wrap that up next week probably. In the next week or two, we'll wrap up First John, and then we'll hit the two little postcards in Second John and Third John uh, before we move on to something else. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time together to study your word, to understand more fully the issue of faith, the, what belief is, what the gospel is. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that right now they would make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is decide what you are trusting in for your salvation. If you believe that it has something to do with how good you are, if you believe it has something to do with how moral you are, the church you go to, or your friends, or your religious activity, or any other human factor, then you are not trusting in Christ alone, and there is no salvation. Salvation is faith alone in Christ alone, trusting him exclusively to save us because of the fact that he solved the sin problem. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. So all you need to do is believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe that, God in his omniscience knows what you're believing. He knows what you're trusting. And at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you are saved. You are regenerate. You possess perfect righteousness and never-ending life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today, that we may press on to spiritual maturity and experience the fullness of that eternal life today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.